Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how the world's most fascinating people have hustled their way to the top. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit and co-owner of Powder Mountain Ski Resort in Utah. And today I'm sitting down with someone who has truly mastered The Art of the Hustle, from starting his company in his parents' basement in 2012 to recently selling it to one of the top multinational food manufacturers in the world, protein bar master chef and incredible entrepreneur, Peter Rahal. For those listening, Peter is one of the co-founders of RX Bar, a protein bar company known for its delicious natural ingredients and no BS mantra. If there's anyone who understands the sacrifice, perseverance, and passion it takes to hustle your way to the top, it's Peter. With that said, please help me welcome to the studio today, Peter Rahal. How are you, Peter? Thank you for being on. Thank you. You know, we've only gotten to talk a couple of times, but I've been blown away by the company that you and uh, Jared built at RX Bar. Um, Thank you for making a delicious and healthy product for us. Thank you. Of course. And how many, how many people now are at RX bar? Uh, today we're about 200, 200 people, uh, full time. And then we have two offices, one, one in Chicago here and then one in the UK. And where are most of the bars manufactured these days? Uh, we have a couple locations manufacturing it, but most of them, um, are in beautiful Southern California. Lovely. You know, I know you started the business in 2012. And I thought a fun way for us to just kick it off would be, you know, starting there um, and, and bring us back there. And you, you and Jared grew up together, correct? Correct. Yeah. First grade, we've met Mrs. Parisi's class and been friends ever since. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. What were you doing before our X-Bar? Uh, so the, I grew up in the food business on the supply side. My, my family has a business called Ray Hall Foods that um, supplies industrial fruit products like juice concentrate, IQF, fruits, and purees. And then, so I grew up in that business. And then I had, was working for a transportation brokerage, like a startup uh, organization with like four or five people. Um, and it was, so that was my job before 
I started our explorer um, and it was quite miserable. Um, so I, I learned, I learned a lot through that experience. I'm sure. And I know you, you're from Illinois and you went to Wittenberg university in Ohio. And, and do, did you, when you were growing up, did you have like any entrepreneurial uh, starts? Is this something that was like in your, in your bones or was RX by your first real venture? Yeah. So as a child, I was super commercial, like very, and I was always building things, whether that's a fort or, you know, building skateboards and selling them, making airplanes, rockets. I was always building things and then always into like the transactions, like trading and buying, selling, et cetera. Um, but then when I got to the age, like my, I had started two other businesses before that both like failed. One was a sleep, a sleep shot, took like a sleep aid shot. And the other one was a, a coffee donut shop that okay. they actually never even got off the ground, but they're, they're failures for sure. That, that, that really like, I learned a, a shitload from. And, and take us to, so how, like, why, why protein bars? Why RX bar? Mm-hmm. What was the, what was the inspiration? So bars, when you think about bars, they have a ton of utility in the sense that like there can be for breakfast, they're on the go, they're mobile, they're like a whole meal or they're a snack. And you think about like one of the main jobs they do as a, as like a form is they like save time. You don't have to prep them. You grab them. They're stable. You, you just eat it. Um, and so I, as a like consumer in the world, like always loved bars. Um, I've been consuming them since like high school the old detour bars for work workouts or whatever. And, and as I got educated in nutrition, I like a simple question was like, why are all the protein bars like full of shit? There's like these, these gas station ones that are like 30 grams that are, you just don't know what's in them. And they're just the ingredient ingredient list is like daunting. And then there's natural ones that don't have any protein or no substance. And so that was the question. And, um, and that's why I was like, all right, well, there's gotta be a better way to make one. Um, so that was, that was the idea. And actually like, I remember I was at work, my little company and, um, I remember seeing an article from like Inc or like entrepreneur saying like, start a nutrition bar company with $10,000 <laughs> or something like that. You know, like one of those yeah. like clickbait t- titles and, um, it just showed you, it, it was basically saying like how you can make it in your kitchen and sell it um and i remember sending that article to jared yeah look you know and this is funny when you think of like those back in those days like the business is so fragile like if the wind blows a certain way or whatever like you just don't do it you know what I mean? you, you could just it's so fragile you could decide like i don't want to do this but anyway that that was that was the bit of the origin of like incredible and and did you start is that i mean is that how it began you guys started making bars in the kitchen oh yeah yeah Incredible, and that, and I remember when we first chatted, it blew my mind that you know six years earlier, six years ago, you were literally hand pressing bars like in your parents' house, correct? Yeah, even better in their in their basement. Oh, I love it. Okay, perfect. But you know, I I want to stay in this phase when you guys were you know just starting it and mixing product and and testing bars, um, and like what what were the what were the start what were the points where you did you raise capital at that point? Um, did you like build the brand out first? Did you already have a name? Um, so we started with the product first, designing the product. 
because like we are in the product business that's like the most important thing um and the strategy so if you look back if thinking back to 2012 i remember we went to like we walked through whole foods or you know kroger these stores and we we're like overwhelmed with how many options were out there and so we knew we had to find a different distribution alternative and uh we were both really into crossfit um and just fitness in general and sports athletics and um saw a really alternative distribution strategy in terms of like selling online um uh, kind of bypassing retail and going direct to consumer and then more importantly direct to gyms as, as our customers uh and gyms and, and meaning mostly crossfit gyms and so our distribution strategy and just the, the business plan how we go to market shaped and defined our whole business so from like our cap table to our manufacturing strategy to our branding to to our to everything and so we actually named the brand after our distribution strategy in the sense or really like our our early adopters um being crossfit so like rx and crossfit is a signal of, of health and it's, it's a it's a signal of high standards and it's in the culture like language language wise so that that was like our origin and the whole plan was like how do we get our business going, get volume up to a certain point. Then how do we cross the chasm to like the natural channel, conventional, and then broader retail. And so because we went direct to consumer and we manufacture the product ourselves, so one, manufacturing the product yourselves um, is brutal. Um, most people would be like, oh, why are you doing that? You got to grow, outsource it, et cetera. But what it allowed us to do is control our inventory uh, both finished product and raw materials. And when you're able to do that, you can control your cash flow much better. So we never had to deal with significant amounts of inventory or cash in inventory. So we'd go essentially think about it as like we make a batch, we sell a batch. Whereas like if you commercialize with a co-manufacturer and outsource it, you immediately have like, you know, 300,000 bars. So like 90 to 120 days of inventory on hand. And that requires a ton of cash. Yeah. So, so that's one. And then two, because it was direct to consumer, um, we got an order, we got paid credit via credit card, and then we shipped it. So literally we had like our payment terms are like one day. I, I love that. How did, how did, I just, I know the answer, but how did you guys design your logo? Did you go to like some fancy advertising agency? No. So I remember going on Microsoft Word, opening up a doc. Typing it in RX bar as many, like using all the fonts on Microsoft Word and just seeing which one <laughs> I'm looked the best. And I remember looking at it and be like, which one is like a little bit athletic? You know what I mean? And <laughs> if you look at our, our angle, it's like slightly like leaning forward, not too aggressive, but yet a little aggressive. So that, that was our process. And the thing is, it was just like, let's just go. We know we were going to change, like where you start, not where you finish, but we just wanted to get to market, move fast and sell product and is it true that you used to put your cell phone on the back of the original packaging yeah for sure it's not only that it was website linkedin everything and it was your cell phone your personal cell phone the same cell phone i'm on right now no way wow so the listeners can look back and figure out how to call you today that's great yeah um no but, but, that, um, but that, that's a good story because that's like a principle of the company like we're servants to our customers and if anyone has any question about whether our almonds are roasted or not or we're, if they wanted to place an order or 
whatever. Like there should be zero friction for them to get to us. And at the time we didn't have an office, but for us it was, we needed to serve our customers. And you wanted them to see that you were totally accessible. And, and I guess speaking of that, you know, it says it on the label, no BS. Do you mind yeah. elaborating on the significance of that as, you know, part of your brand? Yeah. So when we first were making the packaging on PowerPoint, um, when you, when you design a product, like the way ours is designed, there's like, there's a ton of claims. For example, we could claim gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, no added sugar, high protein. And so we were writing like no soy, no dairy, no gluten, or no, no grains, no soy, no dairy. And then it just like flew, flew off our tip of our tongue, like no BS. So that was our, like, that was kind of like our master claim back in the day, but it was, it was more like a wink. You know what I mean? It wasn't like on the chest, no BS. And it's also kind of the brand's personality, just like very direct, honest. Um, and I would describe our culture that way in the same way. So like the product brand and culture kind of all are in sync. And so, yeah, there's like, we're very just honest, I would say. And, and as you were going through the process, so you've like built the brand, you're, you know, selling product, you've built this new you know, distribution, uh, you know, system through the gyms and through the health and wellness space, as opposed to purely through the whole foods of the world. And you were clearly early to thinking about, you know, selling online and building an online direct to consumer brand. Um, what were, is there a moment that you remember when you were really like, okay, chapter one's in the books, like, was there a big client or a big order or a national expansion? Like, when did you take it to the next level for the first time? there's like multiple massive inflection points through the journey. Like the commercialization process was a huge one. Stop making it from like our kitchen scaled kitchen to, to a proper food manufacturing plant was a huge one. Around Um, what time was that? That was May, 2014. And then another huge milestone was getting Trader Joe's distribution to give you an idea. Like, the reason why that was so meaningful is for the first time when someone said, oh, where can I get an RX bar? Like our reaction wasn't like, well, where do you, where do you live? Because before, you know, most retailers are very regional. So you'd have to like, okay, where do you live here? Okay, well, this place has them. You know what I mean? So this first time we could think, oh, you can get them at Trader Joe's. And so I was our first like national, national account, I'd say. I mean, we were able to, we were everywhere, but it was, it was a really important distribution um deal for us and then another thing that's significant about that from a milestone perspective is that if you look at trader joe's business it's 90 percent private label and the only set in the grocery store that isn't is really i mean there's a couple other ones but the bar space in particular isn't um there's not much private label in there and the only participants in that category are like the winners like to get into trader joe's bar is like a big signal Cause it's only, it's like cliff kind quest, like the top dogs in there. And so we were in there. So that was like a huge, like, Oh shit, here we go. And is there a, is there a bit of a, a gatekeeper? I mean, I imagine a lot of those relationships go way back for Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and all these people. Did you guys have to like break down some walls or was the product just better? Uh, it's, it's a combination of both. You have to navigate, you know, it's enterprise sales and then, but the product, you know, was, was hunting too. So you have to, it all has to align. It's kind of like planetary alignment. You can't do one without the other. And it's really incredible to me, man. Like I, I, I typically see, you know, like these two different eras, there's like startup founders, it's like ingenuity and a visionary capacity and, you know, willingness to take like big risk and all that stuff. And often those don't translate down the road. And 
clearly you, you know, started the company and stewarded it, you know, for the last seven years and, and have been able to scale your ability to match what you were facing in the business. How much of that was like your personal growth and how much of it has been like building your team and, and, and learning how to manage? Yeah. I mean, me as a leader, I've, I'm like a different human being than I was seven years ago, for sure. It's been that that much of a stimulus for growth personally for me. And I always, the way I think about it is after the first year, first year is like survival. Like you're, the company's going to die. Your job is to make to survive and prove, prove the concept. And then once you get past the survival phase as a CEO, at least your job becomes like if we shift from being in the bar business and surviving to like being in the people business, um, cause you can't do this alone. Uh, and it, literally to get to the next level and to really adapt and learn, it is all about the organ building an organization and, and, and building teams. And when you think about all like great sales strategy, great marketing, great, you know, generating demand, supply, financing the business, like those are all outcomes of, of what teams do. And so like all a company is, is a group of humans that make decisions together and identify problems, make decisions and, and it's really all it is. And so if you're, if you want to be a great company, you better be really good at doing that and having teams that do that. So that became a focus. I, once I like kind of connected with that dots, that really became a, a focus to, to, to build a, an amazing culture, amazing organization and to reap the benefits. We reap the benefits of it and our customers have. And I've heard that, um, you know, as we've been doing our research, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, thank you for you're going to be speaking at a summit event here pretty soon. And so I, I have the additional benefit of uh, learning, you know, in a deep way about your company and what, what, you know, some of your employees have told us is that it's a very atypical leadership style that you've historically really sort of like shaved the pedestal down, not built it up. Whereas many founders, especially in CPG tend to want to be the center of attention um, tell us about that a little bit. Is that just natural for you or is that something that you learn to do? Um, I think it was the benefit of just starting very humbly here. Um, you know, like in parents' basement, like you get respect one for that. And then you're not, you know, we did every task in the company. So like we were, we had the empathy for like all parts of the business from manufacturing to finance, like the whole thing. And then a value, like bringing back to like the phone number on the package, like one of the company's values is a servant mindset. And so that value that like the leadership we prescribe here is really like a servant's servant leadership. Um, and so that to me, comes natural. And it's the way I grew up for those who the view that know like love languages, it's like my love language. So like service being a servant makes me happy. And then as a leader, like, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. I'm not afraid to like dive in and help. And then I'm not afraid to stay high and, and, and at a visionary level either. Um, so that, that like leadership agility is important. And, you know, people, I think want to work with someone who's going to like get their hands dirty and then get the fuck out of the way. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, boost them up and give them the space to be the superstar of the organization. You don't always have to be Jordan. Yeah, exactly. And, and speaking of, how did you and Jared, how do you, how did you divide responsibilities? Yeah, so it was very natural. Because um, the good thing, like the reason why you work with your friends is because you have rapport 
right? Like we've known each other. Um, and I'm pretty like unreliable. He's very reliable. I'm creative. He's less creative. And so like the commercial side of the business was more my strengths. And then the, the operational like finance accounting side of the business was more his strengths. Um, and there was like, we're, you know, he's a super self-aware person and so am I. So it was a very natural, like, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And it was a very collaborative relationship. So meaning like we never took credit for things. It was more, we're doing this together and you got that, I got that, but we're doing it. And I also have been told by, you know, people that know you well, that the intention of this was never to get rich. That wasn't like why you guys got into business. Clearly, you know, you, you have an entrepreneurial spirit and I know that you weren't intending to sell the company. Um, and, and I, but you guys sold to Kellogg, correct? Correct. Okay. Awesome. So I'm just curious, like, how did that, how did that transition? Like, why, why did you guys decide to sell? And, and first and foremost, what were you, what were you, you know, one, how did you make that decision? And then two, what were you looking for in a potential buyer? Yeah. So we start, we wanted, we just, Jared and I wanted to like to make a better product one and then two, like just build a great company and focus on like the fundamentals of what, what, what creates value in a, in a business. And that's why we built a self-reliant business. That's why we kept improving our product. And then as we went on and started taking off, the question was, was like, what do we want? Where do we, what do we want to be when we grow up as a business? And the way we thought about it is like, there's two paths, either stay private and keep this a family business or to go public and, or roll into a, another bigger organization. Um, and for us, Jared and I both have bad experiences with nepotism and family businesses. And we, I didn't really want to pass this down or hold on forever. Um, and so that was kind of like a no from, from both of our perspectives. And so we're looking at going to a bigger company. So like a public company or going to a strategic and, for us, it wasn't like, hey, we're going to go do this. It was more like, let's go see what this is like. Um, and like in terms of let's go talk to a couple of strategics and see if we're aligned um, philosophically and, and from a business perspective. And then so we just went on a couple of dates. And I would say from a entre food entrepreneur's perspective, you look at the big CPG companies, the big food companies, and you they kind of have this like misconception that they're like evil food companies or something. And then once you get under the covers, they're actually totally not. They're, they're, they're usually very mission driven and actually trying to do good. Um, I think some of their portfolio is a little bit outdated and that's what people uh, I think judge them by, but so we had the same misconception. And then we, as soon as we started going a couple of dates, we realized like, Oh my gosh, like they're not, it's just not true. They're not these like evil companies. So then, and then we just went through the process and what we were looking for in um, a partner or, quiet or someone to buy us was kind of three things. One is like value. So making sure we get the most value for the business. Two, alignment on values and philosophy of like how to work and how, how to run the business. And then three, an operating model. Um, we didn't want someone who's like, we're going to integrate you and fire everyone and just roll you into the company. We wanted to protect our people and, and execute our vision. You recently, or maybe you, you recently stepped down as a CEO, correct? Or you're going to very soon? Yeah. I stepped down, I think like three weeks ago. Oh man. Amazing. Well, one, yeah. congratulations. 
Thank you. Yeah. What are you What are you going to focus on? What are you thinking? Are you going to do a little eat, pray, love life, or what's up? Uh, so I'm going to help our my successor, Jim Murray, the president, like get up to speed and be there as of service to help him think through the leadership team, and um, so just help through the succession, helping Kellogg with um, innovation broadly and, and portfolio strategy, and then for me, <clears throat> I'm eventually going to move on. I'm a pure entrepreneur, I think. And I just got to go create something else. I do best in the early stages and when there's more risk on the line. Um, and I, I'm, a, I'm a creator, so I'm just, I need to get back to like a blank canvas. And uh, so I'm in the process of figuring out my next move. And is there a space in particular that's interesting to you or a set of spaces? Yeah, I think, you know, I like to think I'm agnostic to, to the world in terms of where, you know, I'm not like going to stay in an industry necessarily, but I do have a lot of food experience. My, uh, I'm interested in human beings and cons- so I call it, I call it consumer sciences. So the understanding of humans and consumers. So I just want to solve another problem. So right now I'm just going to learn, collect as much information as possible and see, see if I can find another problem to solve. Well, it's incredible in CPG I read, um, and this fact could be totally wrong because I just read it, but I, uh, I did read that CPG companies, specifically food and bev, typically spend about 2% of revenue investments on R&D, whereas like tech is more like 13 to 15%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we clearly need you know folks like yourself out there you know, taking on these new challenges and, and helping us bring these new products to market. And, and to that end, you know, I'm, just, I'm curious. Uh, just for you personally, what are some of your first principles that you bring to you know all these different projects and people? I think something I've discovered is the m- most important thing in business, leadership, innovation is intellectual humility, humility, hum- humility broadly. And, and the way I define it is freedom from your pride and arrogance. And so when you approach a problem, if you, you approach anything with intellectual humility, you usually get a better outcome. And so for me, whatever I do in the future, and when I think about my peers, relationships, personally, professionally, that it is like the most important thing. And here's the thing is like all humans, we battle with pride naturally. Like it's not like you, you it's not a binary thing. And, and arrogance in particular, like it's, you're at war with it every day. So for me, the principle, a principle in life or a value that is I live by that is super important. Top of mind is is that. And and in terms of just like building skills that you didn't have or like things that you wanted to grow on, um, I know that you you know used to be less comfortable public speaking than you are today. And like as your company scaled, I assume that that need for you to be able to address the two hundred people and you know be the charismatic leader when you're seems like your nature is to reduce the pride and arrogance, not promote it. How did you, how did you learn that? How did you gain that skill? So public speaking, yeah, it's definitely not natural to me, but through repetition, it has, it's in my way more comfortable with it. So like the funny thing is, you know, first the company, we get like six employees or six team, six team members, like doing a town hall there is like super easy. It's like a big meeting. And then when you get 12 people, it's like a little nervous, but easier. So the fact that we've grown, you know, like, to 20 people, 30 people, 50 people, 70 people, 120, then 200, like it helped condition. It was like, it was like adding resistance to it. So it made it easier over time. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty introverted inward thinker and um, worker. So it's, it's exhausting for me, but it's an important part of leadership to, to influence and 
rally the troops and communicate a vision. Um, but I definitely have a lot more, I can, more, more to improve on. Were there some close calls or some final Fridays where you, where you thought you were going to lose it? I mean, I mean, I'm sure you have this shared experience, like throughout the process of growing a business, like it is nothing but mistakes. And I think the key thing is your ability to learn from them, identify them and just mitigate them from happening again. I mean, that's really all it is. It's just like trial, trial, error, iterate, <laughs> trial, error, like keep moving. We've, we, from like, we did have like one really significant near death experience. And that was in our, when we commercialized to a co-man. So like going from making 10,000 bars at a, at a commission, a kitchen, like a kitchen to making 150,000 bars with a, a co-manufacturer, that process, like I was not prudent. I didn't plan. I didn't test. And it was like overly, I was, we were way too overly reactionary. And, and the, my, that, that was like the, one of the most powerful lessons I've ever learned because <clears throat> Like I'm not a natural planner. I'm very like good in ambiguity. And then I realized like, holy shit, the business needs proper planning. It needs, you need to think about the future. And the lesson I learned is like the overarching like principles, like if you're in an overly reactionary state, like just reacting to shit, you are probably missing something really important. I mean, that means you're not doing things that are important that are like not urgent. Totally. You're filling your day with all the stuff that seems like it could be uh, accretive instead of, you know, thinking, uh, I love the term postmortem, uh, or I'm sorry, premortem. I only learned this recently, but premortem is looking at all the things that could go wrong with a particular project. So you can sort of um, start to tease out the potential, you know, uh, unknown unknowns that could come your way. A hundred percent. That's not natural for me at all either. I'm no. like a ready fire aim guy myself. <laughs> incredible man um yeah well i mean this is it's just amazing i mean we're we're it's in 2012 if somebody i'm sure you went to a bunch of people as investors or potential partners and you're like i'm gonna start you know bar company and they're like guy are you serious there's a hundred of these nobody needs this and of course no one shared your vision you know you and, and jared saw this and didn't take no for an answer and forced forced this thing into reality right like Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for people who have a, a vision or a, a project or, you know, something that they see and they believe in, um, and in, in terms of just like how to break past that initial, maybe even internal gatekeeper. Yeah. So I would say, don't be afraid to start in small markets. Truly don't give a fuck what others think. And then make sure you're solving a problem that exists. I mean, think about my experience. We started, we solved the problem. The world didn't have a, like, there wasn't a natural protein bar or there wasn't a paleo protein bar more specifically. Hmm. And then the market we started in was a CrossFit gym market, which probably the cap was 10 million in sales. And then it was humiliating to be making bars in my parents' basement with my childhood friend out of like foil lined resealable pouches and selling them online. Like that was not cool if i cared about other people thought if i wanted to pursue a bigger market if i I, you know i would have raised money it would just would not have worked so that's the pattern you can see this pattern in other businesses too but you 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 can't care what other people you can't care what other people think and you just gotta focus on a real problem and then not be scared of small markets i love that man you're the man we really appreciate you coming on the show 
and sharing with us so uh, so openly and transparently. And uh, I think that it's super valuable for me as an entrepreneur just to understand more about this. So um, thanks again, Peter, and, and best of luck with all your new endeavors. And, you know, uh, we really, really appreciate you. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Wow, that was fantastic. I have a lot of respect for Peter and what he's built, what he and his partner Jared have built. It's really a rare thing to, and, and they did it fast. I mean, from zero to selling to, to Kellogg for hundreds of millions of dollars in, you know, uh, five years. Five years is, what is that? That's uh, like 1800 days. So, I mean, pretty unbelievable zero to hero story. And clearly, you know, these, these guys, they learned a lot on the fly. And uh, I mean, what a humble, peaceful leader. So in terms of just, you know, the things that, that I really took away from this interview, um, I love his concept of, of intellectual humility. You know, freedom from pride and arrogance is how Peter put it. And the idea that, you know, he's always trying to not be the smartest guy in the room. And uh, you often find a very... Uh, a, B set with leaders like Peter of organizations where they either are trying to you know, increase their own ego and reinforce their own existing beliefs. And a lot of them have a lot of confirmation bias where like, oh, well, this thing worked out because I thought it was this way. Must, I must be right again. Whereas guys like Peter, you know, are focused on doing the exact opposite and shaving down the pedestal and finding ways in which they aren't right. And oftentimes those are the ones that succeed to a much, much greater degree. Um, I also love his concept of leadership agility. You know, the idea that, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And you have to just be continuously learning into the curve of your business. And ultimately, if you are going to build and succeed and grow, you're going to be over your skis at some point. There's no way to, to, to play this game and not be outmatched by, you know, just reality at some point in time when you take that level of risk. I also loved his idea that, you know, it sounds so simple, but businesses need planning. Um, you know, if you are overly reactionary, then you're definitely missing something important. And, and that's hard. I mean, when you are a startup entrepreneur and you have ingenuity and you can problem solve on the fly, often you'll, you'll hope that, you know, that skill set will take you all the way to the promised land. And chances are you're going to get knocked out by something or someone like I, I've personally had, you know, million dollar hits to the business because, you know, we didn't read a contract properly over 11 years, you know, so I definitely respect that. And then I love, you know, his his sort of parting is parting wisdom for all of us. Solve a real problem. Start a company that really focuses on something where there's a real need. And not just because you like it or you're building your own identity into it, but really, really think hard and, and give it the proper amount of uh, sober attention, whether or not you're solving a real problem. Not being afraid to start small. You know, the fact that his existing market of gyms was limited and that he started in smaller cities in terms of distribution, you know, and that created the groundswell and the platform for him to dim scale, you know, nationally. I think that that's a really powerful lesson. And, and then just, you know, do your best and forget the rest and never surrender forever. He's a guy that doesn't, he didn't say that, but <laughs> it's, it's clear to me that he's the type of guy that really couldn't care less what we think about him because he knows his values and his, in his character. And there's clearly an integrity to the moves that he was making that, you know, make it, make it, make him able to, uh, you know, take those risks and believe in what they were building. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning into art of the hustle. I'm Jeff Rosenthal and see you next time. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 